Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies for doing the heavy lifting on today's episode. You can learn more about him at idealvideostrategies.com. Also, the second Wall of Awful video has posted to Jessica McCabe's How to ADHD channel on YouTube. It's amazing. Jessica and her team do phenomenal work. The link for both of those will be in the show notes. Finally, the best way to support this show is by sharing it with others. Share it on Instagram, share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook, whatever happens to be your social media of choice. In fact, you can text it to your friends. So if you're listening to this on your phone, just go ahead and share it straight to the people who you think might find it beneficial. Or tell them when you encounter them in the real world. This is episode 71. Today, we're talking to my friend Leanne. Leanne is a school psychologist working with elementary school students, and I really enjoyed our conversation. This was the first time we got to geek out about mental health and school-related topics. The conversation was both wide-ranging and insightful. I'm looking forward to having another one with her in the not-too-distant future. In today's episode, we talk about how school testing works, things that don't show up on tests and rating scales, the difference between private testing and school testing, and there's some really important information in there that you're going to want to hear, and looking at the whole student to determine what's best for your kid. All right, let's get rolling. I'm a school psychologist. I work primarily with elementary age kids, kindergarten through fifth grade. Part of what you do is that you test the kids who are, we have concerns about ADHD. Yes. The reason I wanted to have you on was just to kind of give parents a perspective of what that looks like. What does it look like to get my kid tested? Um, what are the expectations that I should have as a parent that my kid should have as a kid? And, and potentially even the difference between being tested at school and also being tested privately. Primarily, we get referrals from either parents or teachers that have concerns about either how their child or student is learning or how they're behaving in school, even sometimes how their social-emotional functioning is looking. And those referrals are not always just asking about attention deficit or problems with attention, but oftentimes it's a part of the referral question. So that's how they end up sort of landing in my queue. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you know, for me, it's really important to find out who the referrer was and what their reasons for referral are. So talking to the parents, getting some history, developmental history, academic history, if the child's ever been retained, if there's discipline issues, if they have difficulty at home with behavior, also talking with the teacher to find out what is it looking like in class and sort of 
taking that all into consideration when I am building my battery of tests to look at figuring out what's going on for the student. And when you say retained, you mean like held back a year, right? Like they repeated first grade or something. Yeah. So once you've got that background information around their behavior, their academic success or lack thereof, whether or not they've been held back, their emotional challenges or successes or strengths or weaknesses, do the tests vary based on what that background information is? Or is it pretty much the same three or four tests that you're going to be using? So it varies based on the referral reason more than the background information. My job is to answer a question. So if the parent refers for an assessment and they say their referral question is, why is my child unable to make progress in school? Why is my child unable to manage their behavior? Why is my child unable to sit in the chair as long as their typical peers are? So my job is to take that referral question and then determine what tools I need to use in order to answer that question. There are definitely some typical batteries. And then, you know, for me, the challenge is looking at outside of the typical battery, what do I need to really understand this particular child? Because as we know, every child is unique and it's important that it's not sort of a blanket standard test. Okay. And the, and the test itself is made up of sort of multiple different tests. We have the evaluation and then we have the instruments that we use within the evaluation. And so with that, there's things like looking at cognitive ability, so IQ, how a student expresses their knowledge best, how their strengths and weaknesses as a learner sort of manifest in school. But then there's things like, are they able to inhibit impulses? Are they able to um, use their working memory? Are they able to take in information and store it for the short term or the long term? So all of these things sort of come together to make the evaluation itself. It should be rating scales that are done at school, at home, teachers, parents. Sometimes the student themselves does a rating scale and then direct testing with the student. And what does a rating scale look like? Like, what does that entail? So there's a couple of different kinds. There's most of them have a parent form, a teacher form, and a student form. And it's usually a series of questions. Some of them are really long. I have one that's about 100 questions, and it feels like cruel and unusual punishment to administer to a child, but they're pretty good about it. And it just asks a series of questions, some of them very repetitive and asked in different ways. So they just sort of move the words around to mean the same thing. But they're looking at things like, it's hard for me to sit still, and you're answering on a scale of like one to four. So it's never hard for me to sit still, or it's always hard for me to sit still, or it's sometimes hard for me to sit still. And then would we have another question that's something along the lines of, it's easy for me to sit still, or it's... No, instead of it being the opposite, it would be more like, I move around in my seat a lot, or my body feels like it's on the go. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's said in a different way, but in some ways the, the test is looking for consistency. It's sort of like an internal validity that's built in so that 
you can be sure that the person completing it is actually reading the questions, that they're not just sort of going through and checking off arbitrary answers. And it, it helps us look at the reliability of the rater. What are some of the tests that parents might find coming home? Most parents will probably receive a Connors, which is a rating scale that asks a lot of the questions I just spoke about. Um, and it's, it's their perspective of how their student is at home and school, which can be tricky because obviously the parents aren't there. So sometimes I find that parents are have some struggles with answering the questions that have more to do with school. Mm-hmm. But there's questions about homework, behavior, and what it's like when they're in the community. So things like waiting in lines, um, things like mood stability. So they would likely fill out a Connors. Um, there's another scale that looks at executive functioning. It's called the brief. And so that sort of goes into more detail about things like getting started, monitoring yourself as you move through a task, completing tasks. How often do you start a task and not complete it? Working memory, um, an ability to like reflect back and say, you know, did I do this well? Do I need to revisit it? Are there any areas that I skipped or I didn't sort of monitor my progress with? So that looks more at that part of the ADHD. Okay. And which one has the hundred questions just so parents can ask to not get that? The one. Connors. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't recall off the top of my head how many the brief is, but the Connors is definitely <laughs> I filled out the Connors a few times as a teacher. I'm sure you have. <laughs> yeah. I used to get a kick out of it because I would uh this is before I was doing my ADHD journey that I've now gone on. Um, but when I was starting to go like, I think that maybe I have this. Yeah. A big chunk of it was filling out the corners for my students and sort of half filling it out for me too. Right, right. And, yeah. and being like, man, I'm worse off than this kid. Like how he's getting checked for ADHD and I'm, I know what it should look like and right. I think I might have that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the tricky part about the rating scales is they are subjective. They're based on someone else's observation mm-hmm. of a student or a client. And it's really important information, but it's also, I think, important to be looking at sort of the whole child, the whole student, and what they're presenting with and all the environments and sort of their whole life academically, behaviorally, socially, Mm -hmm. at home, things like that. Yeah, even that self-reporting stuff Mm. that you're mentioning. I could imagine that if I were to fill out the Connors and it was like, how often do you complete tasks? And I'm like, oh, most of the time. (laughs) And my wife is like, sometimes. (laughs) Because I just don't realize it. I'm sure there's stuff that I leave undone. Right. And I just don't notice it because it's not a matter of me not wanting to finish it. And it's not a matter of that thing not being important to me. It's that I was doing it. I got distracted because something else came up. And then I just forgot all about the fact that I should have continued to do that. Definitely. And I think that that is exactly what it's like, you know, for for people with ADHD. And I think it's a really important thing to consider when you said um, it's not that you don't want to finish. It's not that you don't care about finishing. It's that something else popped up either in your mind or in the environment. And 
I think oftentimes adults can forget that when it comes to kids and think that this is, you know, a motivation issue or a laziness issue or a boredom issue and forget that mostly kids want to do well and they want to finish what they started and they want to please their teachers and their parents. Yeah. See, now you're talking my soapbox. Yeah. Cause this probably is probably of the same soapbox. <laughs> yeah. I jump on this all the time. To me, there's no such thing as lazy. Yeah. Lazy is learned helplessness that has been caused by a lack of skills. I was going to say, or a lagging skill for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I lack the skill. I don't know how to do this thing. Yep. So I don't do it. And then someone else does it. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned to be helpless around that skill, yep. around that task. But it's not that I'm lazy. No one ever really explained to me how to do this, probably because they thought I would figure it out and I just didn't. Yeah, exactly. And nobody's teaching me the skill. And right. I think that's something that we overlook easily is if somebody, a student is lacking a skill, how are we going to either accommodate them or teach them that skill so that they can then sort of fill in that gap? Yeah. And that's that's enormous because... The whole idea of they're lazy, they're unmotivated, they just don't care. Yeah. What those do is they excuse the person saying it from having to look any deeper. It's a really easy answer. And then I get to stop there. Right. And typically the person saying that is the adult. (laughs) Right. And I think it also contributes so much to the child's suffering. And that's something that we tend to also forget is that if a child is either perpetually failing or um, something we see at school all the time that they hear their name over and over and over and over again Tommy stop Tommy sit down Tommy what are you doing Tommy you didn't finish that and hearing that over and over and over again creates this wall of awful perception of yourself yeah right <laughs> and it's this perception of yourself that is damaging and Instead of it being, you know, I did a, a poor job at X, Y, and Z, then they start to internalize, I am bad, or I am in trouble. And that's, you know, not somewhere that people like you and I want kids to go. Yeah, and that's part of why we bring the testing in, is to sort of, one, find out what those missing skills are. Yeah. And two, hopefully the diagnosis provides a little bit of a reset for that kid. And and we have to be a little careful where we don't want the diagnosis to become an excuse. Yep. We want to keep it in the land of a reason, right? Like it's, oh, well, the reason you're struggling with this is because you have ADHD. And that means you probably lack some skills. Mm -hmm. And so we can teach those skills. Right. We can help you. So just going back to the, um, the question you asked regarding the testing battery. So the rating skills are definitely you know, an important piece of it, but it's also, in my opinion, important to be looking at the child's actual skills, how they demonstrate their skills. So there's absolutely classroom observations, even observations outside of the classroom, whether that be at recess or during a special like health or library um, gym class even in the lunchroom, are they able to sort of conform to the social norms of the setting that they're in? And how might that be illustrating something having to do with their ability to 
utilize their attention and executive functioning skills. And then in addition to that, there's actual testing instruments that I can do with them that help me to see how they are organizing information, how they are able to, again, inhibit impulses and utilize their working memory shift set, which is, you know, going from one task to another easily. So looking at all of those things, I think are an important part of really understanding how the child is presenting. What areas are you expecting to be weak Hmm. if we're looking at ADHD? So, I mean, as you know, it, it absolutely varies and it depends also on the type of, of attention deficit that they're presenting with. A lot of my students will show difficulty with working memory specifically because they lose focus during the task. So as we can assume, anything you don't listen to is not going to be stored. So if you get distracted while your teacher is teaching something and you go off in your mind and then you come back and you've missed an entire, even 30 seconds, that information isn't going to be stored in your working memory. So you're not going to be able to retrieve it. So that same thing can happen with testing when we're doing just even these short activities that assess working memory. If I'm, say, reading a paragraph to a student and they sort of drift off, then when I'm asking them, you know, tell me what you remember from the story, there'll be these big chunks missing. It can be really interesting to see which chunks are missing. Did they get the beginning? but not the end? Did they only get the end? Did they only get the middle? Which kind of helps you understand where they lost focus. And you just demonstrated working memory in this conversation, right? Because I asked you about the testing battery and then we wandered into lazy and unmotivated. Yeah. And me being the ADHD guy, I would have happily moved on to the next question. (laughs) But you were like, I didn't finish that answer. Let me circle back and continue on because your working memory was doing better than mine was. My working memory was working, but also my um, sort of safeguarding was working because I really don't want anybody to think that just filling out a rating scale is a sufficient and effective way to assess for a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's just important to be looking at all the different skills, all the different presentations, um, talking to the child, imagine, <laughs> <laughs> actually asking them, what's hard in class? Is it hard for you to pay attention? Is it hard for you to sit still? What would help? You know, I have kids say things to me that are so simple. I just wish I could stand at my desk. We can fix that. Mm-hmm. These are problems we can solve. So, you know, just kind of going back to the basics in that way. Those little fixes that sometimes kids don't know they're an option. Mm -hmm. And sometimes kids are just afraid to ask that. And so giving them that permission to be able to to say, what do you need? Right. It's huge. Right. So when, and I'm not looking for solid numbers here. Sure. But when you're testing kids and the ADHD diagnosis comes up, Mm -hmm. how often does something else come with it? So dyslexia, autism spectrum disorder, things yeah. like that. So that's a that's a great question and it's it's a big one. I think that just sort of tagging on to what you said about, you know, does it come up with autism? So there are a lot of 
disorders and disabilities that attention or deficits in attention can fall under, which may be separate from ADHD. So they may have attention problems, but it's falling under the umbrella of a different disability. Mm -hmm. So definitely I see it a lot with children on the spectrum. I also see a lot of overlap with attention and anxiety, which is a really tricky thing to tease out sort of the chicken and the egg because anxiety looks like inattention and inattention may be anxiety. And then we have trauma playing in there, which is absolutely enormous. And that's sort of the attention deficit that sometimes you can't see because the child has had like a complete system shut down in front of your eyes, but you can't see that because they might be just quiet. Whereas another child might be acting out and externalizing all of those feelings that come with trauma. I think, you know, some of the rating scales, for example, the Connors that I talked about, it does pull screener questions that pull out, is there a concern about anxiety? Is there a concern about depression? When items come up in those areas, it sort of alerts somebody like me to be looking at, you know, is there something else going on? And that something else could be going on in addition to ADHD. Mm-hmm. It could be going on instead of, but it's important to look at, you know, is this a comorbidity thing? Is this that they're presenting with depression and attention deficit? Or is this that they're depressed and maybe they're ruminating and having, you know, all of these thoughts and that's keeping them from paying attention? I talk about that in my workshops a lot where I'll talk about if you have ADHD, you also have anxiety. They just go Mm. together. If you have anxiety, you don't necessarily have ADHD. But if you've got ADHD, anxiety is coming along to play. You might not have clinical level anxiety, but you've at least got a little bit of something. Well, I find a lot of kids say to me, which I think is so articulate when they're able to say, sometimes I just sort of drift off and then... When I come back, I realize I missed something and I get really worried about what I missed. And so then I'm worried about what I missed. So I'm still missing more information, which just sort of builds on the discomfort. Is the ADHD causing the anxiety? Because the ADHD, something happened, you missed a piece of information, you didn't do your homework, whatever the case may be, and now I'm anxious. Absolutely. Or is the anxiety making it harder to get to the ADHD underneath? Yeah. Yeah. That's a fun little blend that we have. <laughs> I know. The poor, the poor person that has to try to tease it all out and, and figure out a way to be successful. And that's one of the reasons that I encourage coaching and, and the work that I do, right? Because if you have an ADHD diagnosis that actually isn't right because what's really going on is trauma or or clinical anxiety that we're thinking is ADHD or whatever the case may be. And you try to medicate that, it just doesn't work. And now you got nothing, right? But if what you're doing is you're going with someone who can build skills, whether that's a special education teacher or an ADHD coach, a school counselor, or whoever the case may be, Mm -hmm. then not only are you still getting those skills, yeah, but also hopefully that person has the educational background to be able to say, this feels like something else. Right. They might then need to refer you to a different person. If I find trauma in a client, 
I'm like, look, I can do a little bit with trauma, but that's not my expertise. So right. let's get you to someone who is ex an expert in trauma. Come back to me when you're ready or we can go at the same time. Right. But that's, an, that's a reason that having a person over a pill is a good strategy. Yeah, I like that. And, and I think too, sometimes, like you said, it is just a feeling. You know, you're sitting with a kid, helping them with something, and they start talking about, I'm worried because my mom's homesick today. And then you realize, like, there's other stuff going on here. And it's not always going to show up on a rating scale, and it's not always going to show up in a test. But we have to sort of listen to our professional opinion, our professional intuition, and, and say, something's not right. And what can I do to figure out? how this is playing a role in their difficulty. And, and going along with that professional skill set, what are the credentials that you need to have in order to, to test for ADHD, anxiety, autism? Yeah, so that's interesting. So it all depends on which role you want to play. So, so for me, as a school psychologist, I have a master's in education and a certificate of advanced graduate studies in school psychology. So I, I can do these assessments and I can be looking at these things, but then there's, you know, neuropsychologists and medical doctors, and, you know, the medical professionals. I mean, pediatricians will often diagnose and they're basing those diagnoses on other information. It's not just what they're seeing in their office. So mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of a conglomeration of things. But, you know, when you say what are the um, qualifications, it sort of depends on which area you're coming at it from. But the answer is advanced degrees, right? Like yeah, yeah. master's plus or doctorate, one or the other. Yes. And this isn't a situation where you can print the Connors off the internet somewhere and give it to your kid and be like, oh, I can figure this out. And now I know you have ADHD because right. it says I have to wiggle in my seat a bunch right. and I'm not paying attention. And that means that you must have ADHD. There's a lot more information in these tests. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that is a concern when it comes to people saying things like, oh, he's so ADHD or, you know, you're driving down the street and you miss your exit and you say to your friend, oh, that was just my ADD when you actually don't have a diagnosis or even meet the criteria, but you're using this term loosely as a description. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be careful with that. I think teachers um, often will say, oh, that student is so ADD. And it's important to ask the question, like, what do you actually mean by that? Is, is it that you are concerned that they have a diagnosable condition that we need to be looking at? Or are you just sort of qualifying for me what they're looking like in class and the sort of fleeting way. Yeah. You know, sort of like when people say, I'm so OCD, but they don't actually have OCD. They just are very organized. <laughs> right. And what that does is it's, it belittles the actual disorder, right? Absolutely. I was on a hike with a friend of mine over the weekend and we're going up a hill and he's breathing hard. And what he didn't say to me was, oh, I'm so asthma. <laughs> He said, I am not in as good shape as I would like to be. Yeah, yeah. And that matters, right? I actually have asthma. <laughs> right. So if he had said that to me, I would have been like, what are you, huh? That's weird. But I hear people say, oh, I'm so ADHD all the time. Right. And even sort of guarding that term as much as I do, it still gets past me sometimes. Right. And I'm thinking in your world, that must be really frustrating when you hear that. Yeah. 
because it's never something good. You never have someone walk into the room and be incredibly charming. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I'm so ADHD. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's a thing that goes with ADHD. It's more of a side effect. It's not a trait, but it's like we ADHD folks who often mess up, we have to be charming so we can be forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. we wind up as a side effect to learning how to manage people. But it's never a positive thing with ADHD that, that people wind up using it on. And the same is true with OCD or bipolar disorder or whatever the case may right. be. Do you find that a lot of people with ADHD mask with humor? I find that a lot of people with ADHD mask. Okay. And humor is the fallback. Mm-hmm. So the first mask is scrambling and hoping no one notices. Mm-hmm. Like I, I often talk about how um, people with, a, with ADHD, we prioritize based on urgency mm. as opposed to based on what should be prioritized. Yeah. So we're going from fire to fire to fire trying to keep our house from burning down. Yep. And if we could just stop and rewire our house, we wouldn't have so many electrical fires, but we never do that. We just run from outlet to outlet to outlet. Yeah. And one of my new terms is an emergency is an urgency Mm -hmm. that other people know about. (laughs) Like now I have to worry because other people found out and I might be judged. Yeah, right. And I think that's sort of what you're saying is when you talk about priorities, looking at the difference between urgent important, right? Mm-hmm. Urgent and important. Mm-hmm. And which one of those comes first? And I think for people with both anxiety and attention deficit really struggle with how can I manage an emergency and something that's urgent and something that's important? Mm-hmm. Like, cause they all feel the same. Yeah. And so too does fun. Yeah. And a lot of the time, especially with younger kids, I'm going to prioritize fun over important and over urgent. Sometimes urgent can beat fun. It depends. That one can kind of go back and forth. If it's so urgent that I've shut down, then fun's going to win. Right. And if it's urgent enough that I haven't shut down yet, I'll probably do urgent. And I feel like you raise a good point when it comes to children because they don't really always know what is urgent and what is important and what is an emergency. And, you know, we're here to teach them that. But if they don't know that and we expect that they do, then we're sort of setting them up for failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're setting ourselves up for frustration. Absolutely. Just let the kid be 10. I know. And recognize too that ADHD is a developmental disorder. So if the kid is 10, neurologically, they might be eight. Mm -hmm. And so what their peers are doing might not be stuff they can do. And, And that's okay. That's how the disorder works. If they could do it, they wouldn't have ADHD. Absolutely. So let the kid have ADHD. Yeah. Let them be who they are and figure out how we can help them be the best version of who they are. Yeah. Not necessarily taking away their ADHD traits, but how can we make them work for them? You have, I I would say, right? You've taken your ADHD traits and made them work for you. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, they still bite me in the butt sometimes. Of course. I'm currently in the midst of being terrible at email, um, but <laughs> as people who have emailed me know, there's some listener going right now going, yeah, I emailed him like a month ago and I haven't heard back yet. And I sincerely apologize. I email me again, um, <laughs> but it's, it's, and it's because I'm doing too many things. I'm right. doing the coaching. I'm doing the workshops. I'm doing this podcast. And also I am a principal and a dad and, and a, a dad and a friend. Right. And a, and a, 
human den leader for Cub Scouts, and I'm being recruited to join my town's disability council, and too many things. Yeah. But soon the principalship will wrap up, and then I'll have a lot more sort of brain space. It's yeah. Took up all my bandwidth, but too good of an opportunity for me to turn down. Right. Earlier, you mentioned sort of neuropsychologists and different kinds of testing that are available. Mm-hmm. And that led, leads me to kind of wonder, what's the difference between, like, I guess, private testing versus school testing, for lack of a better way to put it? There's a few differences. And it's not always about which instruments are used, which is surprising to some people. Often I'll get a report from a neuropsychologist on one of my students, and it'll be the same battery of tests that I would be using. They are completed definitely in a different way in the sense that it's usually all in one day, which can run about six to eight hours, which I find to be tricky when it comes to kids in general. I mean, what eight-year-old should be able to work for six to eight hours? But also the, the idea of the cognitive fatigue, of just the level of frustration that that could evoke. I think it's good to break things up if possible. It's not always possible. So the difference, one of the differences that you will see is on a report that is submitted by a neuropsychologist, they will write the student meets the criteria for a diagnosis of ADHD or, you know, any other thing that they're looking at. Whereas in school, we can't use that word diagnose. So we look for what are they showing us? What is the level of impairment? How is, you know, their disability impacting their learning, their thinking, their concentration? Whereas sort of a more medical model is looking specifically to determine a label do they have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder? And are you not using the word diagnose simply because you're not using a medical model? Or is there more to it than that? The medical model can do that and the schools cannot. Even when it comes to things like a learning disability, like a school is looking for, say, an impairment in reading, mm-hmm. right? We have these disability categories to determine eligibility. But we're not saying things, you, you mostly won't hear school professionals say things like dyslexia, because that's a very specific diagnosis. You will hear things like the student presents with a specific learning disability in the area of reading or in the area of math. In some ways, it's a technicality, in my opinion, but you know, it's something that we have to be careful of as school psychologists, because we can't you know, operate outside of our qualifications and our sort of jurisdiction. Something interesting that has just recently come up for me, and I actually tried to do some research about this earlier, was this idea that a student, so it it used to be very clear that the school wanted or required a medical diagnosis from a professional outside of the school system that stated that a child has a diagnosis of ADHD. And that without that, we were sort of like, oh, our hands are tied. We really can't do much without that. And now I'm experiencing times where we could be at a team meeting going over testing, going over eligibility, talking about what the child looks like on a day-to-day basis. 
And we don't have a diagnosis from a medical professional, but the child clearly has needs and the child clearly is looking like a child who's struggling with attention issues. And so this term school-based attention has been used as a way to sort of like go around it. Yeah. In a good way. I mean, I see it as a way to give kids what they need. Yeah. Because I see there's immediate class issues there. There's immediate, if I don't have the kind of health insurance that's going to allow me to go get an ADHD diagnosis, then I can't get an ADHD diagnosis. And now my kid can't get the services that he needs because I don't have the right job. Or because I'm not well enough or because I have ADHD and I can't get out of my own head to get this appointment scheduled, right, right. for my kid, or because the parent has mental illness or physical illness. And so all of these conditions that you're talking about that prevent them from getting what supposedly we need. Mm -hmm. And the struggle is, how are we going to help the kid? And so if if we can help them by saying, you know what, we don't have a medical diagnosis, it would be great if at some point we do. But in the meantime, they present with school-based attention and we're going to address that. That's great. And that also plugs another hole mm. that you probably don't even know exists. I can't wait. Which is within the parenting community, not everybody, but enough people, there's this sort of embittered perspective on school testing Yeah. that almost views the fact that you don't use the word diagnosis as sinister mm -hmm. as being unwilling to just give my kid the services that he needs yeah. because you can't say that he has ADHD. In the course of this conversation, what's come out is you as a school psychologist simply don't have the right credentials because mm -hmm. you're not a medical person mm -hmm. to say that it's a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You got to stay in your lane. Yeah. And various and sundry state agencies have decided that it's got to be a medical diagnosis. And right. that's way above your pay grade. That's above the pay grade of the principal. It's mm -hmm. probably even above the pay grade of the superintendent because we're talking state law stuff for this. Right. And so it's not sinister. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. But it's not sinister at your level. It's not sinister at the level of the school where we simply can't say that. There's paperwork reasons. There's blue tape stuff going on that means we need a medical diagnosis. Right. That can get shored up by activist parents who want to change the rules. Right. But in the meantime, you're finding that there are educators out there who are like, let's call it school-based attention yeah. and get around this little hiccup. Right. And I think, you know, what you're saying is so important. And it's one of the things about sort of the relationship between the school and the community that I find so painful and that I wish there was a way to really work for change. And that's the relationship between the schools and the parents and the level of trust and the, the sort of level of feeling like we're on opposing teams instead of that we're on the same team and it's the team that's going to help the child. And I get it. I understand how it must be incredibly frustrating for parents that are just looking to do the best and the most right thing for their child. For me, as a school psychologist, the same exact thing. I'm looking to do the right thing that their child needs to help them the best way possible. 
And it's important to always remember that a diagnosis that isn't isn't a legitimate diagnosis is not always the right thing. There are there are things that we have to look at long term about misdiagnosing. So we don't ever want to do that either. But there's this idea of helping kids and sometimes we can help them without a diagnosis. And sometimes they don't meet criteria and we can still help them. For me, that's a really important thing because I don't ever want parents to feel like the school is abandoning them or refusing to give their child what they need or teach their child in the way that they need to be taught. I always want the child to be successful. And I assume that most teachers want the same thing. And so we're going to do whatever we can to reach that. And I wish there was a way to sort of bridge the gap between the parents that maybe don't see it that way. And they might not see it that way because they've experienced other situations where it was proven to them that the school was not on the same side as them. There are absolutely parents listening to this podcast who have had that experience. Absolutely. And I don't want to discredit that in any way, shape or form. And I've been a part of those conversations where parents are saying, you know, in my previous district or the previous person that I spoke to, you know, this happened and it's really left me feeling really vulnerable to, you know, what you're going to do and if you're really going to help my student. And I have so much empathy for them because it shouldn't be that way. You know, we should all be working to provide a successful, safe environment for kids. And I hope that when there are sort of those disconnections and injuries to the relationship that it can be brought to the forefront and worked on and that like that reconnection can happen and trust can be built. One thing that I like to point out to teachers and to parents is that unless you're a school professional, if you're just a Joe Schmo adult walking in off the street into a school, when you walk into that school, you become the kid that you were when you were in school. It's so interesting. That has a profound psychological impact on the power dynamics that you then experience in the school. It's these preconceived notions, right? Right. And so if you're the parent who has ADHD walking into the school to talk about your kid who has ADHD and your kid's getting in trouble and you got in trouble, you feel like you're in trouble walking in. Right. You're bringing all of that with you. Yeah. And you have to know that. But so too does school staff. Mm-hmm. Because school staff needs to do what they can to allay that yeah. emotional response from the parent. Because parents walk in and some of them are hitting fight, flight, and freeze from the jump 100%. when they walk in the door. And where do you go to have these conversations? Right. Kind of, sort of, to the principal's office. It might not literally be the principal's office, but it's a meeting room next to the principal's right, office, right. In the main office. And you feel like you're getting in trouble and you don't even know it. You don't even know this is happening. Right. And you might be coming in defensive because of that. Yeah. So therefore, you're sort of the school and you are starting off on not the best note. And, you know, I do want to acknowledge, too, that it, it absolutely happens that way. There are absolutely times when a parent has 100% every right to feel that the school is pushing back and that the school is not, you know, meeting their needs or their expectations. One of my points in that is that 
it's important to not paint with a broad brush and say that because one school or one personnel did that, that that's going to be the case everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that it gets talked about. I mean, for me, when I was a building-based psychologist, I had parents come to me and say, like, this is what's happening and I need your help. And that was awesome because then I had the opportunity to make change for them if they were having some struggles with other areas of learning or if they were coming in, like you were saying, like, you know, coming into a school gives me a lot of anxiety. I don't know how to help my child and I don't know who to talk to about it. Oftentimes the school psychologist is just enough removed from like the administration stuff that that can be a safer place for somebody like you're describing. And I find that to be a really valuable part of my job yeah. to be able to help with that. Yeah. I, I've watched parents. I've gone in with parents even Yeah, go into schools and, and the emotions that they're going through. One, I'm worried about my kid mm -hmm. and I'm not just worried about my kid getting in trouble in elementary school. I'm worried about what does this mean for my kid when they're 30? Yep. Like that's happening somewhere too in their heads. 100%. And then they're walking into school and they're like, oh man, that's the principal's office. <laughs> I remember when I had to go to the principal's office yep. and, and they're maybe not even aware of all this stuff. They just think they're going in for a meeting about a failed test grade or, right. or some disruptions on the playground or something. But all this other stuff is happening under the surface and parents need to guard against it and walk in with a, with a little more of a, of a mindfulness nature around mm. that. I've gone in with like CEOs of companies who just wither as they walk through the front door. Like we'll have conversations going in. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, you just became 12 again. Like, do you know that that happened? That's so bad. And, and the dad was like, I did. Oh my God. Yeah. Stop. Like, yeah. you know how much money you make? And he's like, Oh, that's true. I'm like, yeah. So do you know how many people like report to you or whatever? Look up to you. And yeah, whatever I need to do to give that parent that little like boost of remember who you are kind of stuff. Sure. And also remember that your kid and you are separate and that you can walk in with all of that sort of going on on the inside and still be a fabulous advocate for your child. And it doesn't need to be that you're going in to fight with the school. Mm -hmm. You're not like, this is all the things you're doing wrong, right? right. We want to meet in the middle. My kid's yeah. messing up. I, as a parent, am maybe messing up. Mm -hmm. School is maybe messing up. Let's figure out how we can reduce how much messing up is happening. Yeah, exactly. And let everyone take some accountability. Clean up the mess. <laughs> right. So just being mindful of time. Yeah. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? I think, you know, based on our conversation, one of the things that stood out for me in talking to you is just the idea of the open-mindedness, the really sort of panning out and looking at the whole child, what's really happening, what are the other possibilities, like what else could be happening, not instead of ADHD, maybe in addition to, you know, I think that we often as educators and I would imagine as parents, we sort of go into this sort of automatic mode where everything sort of fits a certain box. And I think just remembering that kids don't fit in boxes and that we have to look at all of the different things that could be playing a role, whether it's, like you said, trauma, social, emotional, difficulty learning. If, if a child has a learning disability, is that 
separate from their attention? Are they having trouble learning because they can't attend or vice versa? So just sort of like looking at the whole picture and ultimately doing what's best for the student and really asking yourself, what is the best thing here for this child? And then we have to look at how can we get that? How can we do that and be successful at that? But I think until you identify what the best thing is, you're sort of missing the, the priority. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at adhdessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, adhdessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.